Here we go. Folks, this is your host Cameron Ivy of Privacy Please, and thank you so much for tuning in each and every week. If this is your first time, welcome to the show. Tell your friends about it if you like it. If you don't, let's just pretend you didn't listen to it. Thanks again for coming in, and we hope you enjoy the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Privacy Please. I am your host Cameron Ivy, and with me. As always, Mr. Gabe Gums, my co-host. How you doing, Gabe? I'm good. I'm good. How you doing? I'm good, man. It's Friday. Getting ready for Turkey Day? Turkey Day. And my family, they don't eat turkey, so we have to do some kind of prime rib or roast or some filet mignon. I don't know. I feel you. Yeah, it is what it is. Um, But anyways, uh, we have a very special show today. We have the founder and former CEO at White Hat Security and current CEO at Bit Discovery, Mr. Jeremiah Grossman. Jeremiah, hey thanks for coming on. Thank you. Hey guys, good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Absolutely. <laughs> Gabe, well, you know, you know Jeremiah going way back, right? I'll let you go bit. ahead and jump in here with, with, uh, yeah. with the start of everything. I mean, I, I know things. I, I might even know a few things not everyone knows, but why did you tell the audience a bit about yourself? Uh, other than my name, Jeremiah, yeah, um, founded White Hat Security about, let's see, at the end of 2001. So I've been in InfoSec about 20 years now, predominantly in application security, predominantly as an unabashed breaker of things, finding vulnerabilities in web application software. When I entered uh, the security world, there really wasn't such a thing called web security or application security. Those naming conventions came later. Um, I really founded White Hat Security out of a need that I had uh, when I was working at Yahoo for a couple of years, where websites had vulnerabilities. We just didn't know where they were, and no one had a model that would scale the act of web application hacking. So uh, that's where White Hat was born. And uh, uh, over time, we yes, we had scanners. Yes, we did you know scanning, but we grew what one of I think the largest at the time private web hacker army. So that was pretty amazing. That was a, that was a fun ride was a fun ride. So I was actually along for much of that. Well, not much of that ride, but for a decent amount of that ride. And uh, that threat research center that, that you uh, that you mentioned, I was actually telling some stories from it the other day because breaking those things were all kinds of fun. But let's talk a little bit more about inventing things and breaking things. Um, because before the show, we were we, we were talking a bit about some, some InfoSec history and uh, your co-founder of BitDiscovery and, and, and also another old friend, uh, Mr. Robert Hansen there, AKA Arsnake, um, took a screenshot of a clickjack reference on uh, television. Yeah, so just to correct, uh, technically, because other people would, uh, would not, not like it, but Robert technically wasn't a, f- a co-founder of White Hat. He came in much later. I met Robert. No, no, no. I, I apologize. I'm in a bit discovery. Oh, yeah, yeah. A bit discovery, right. Uh, Robert Hansen, affectionately known as Arsnake, very much a co-founder of bit discovery. Yes. So <laughs> in about 2010, I think, oh, gosh, it must have been, I think we did internet hacking, but we did a bunch of research together probably in 29, 2010, a year after we met. And uh, we coined a term for a new attack technique called clickjacking, otherwise known as UI redressing. And so what this is, it's a way, if you're an attacker, 
to control a web page that somebody comes to. So imagine I'm an attacker, I deploy a web page. You come to the page and you think you're clicking on something, let's say a Facebook like button or a post here or a click into a form field, but you're, what you're really clicking on is something that I, can, I control. You know, give me your name, give me your email address, buy a whole bunch of stuff on Amazon. Um, we thought this concept was really generic and it was quite a you know, powerful attack technique. And the way to demonstrate it, this is where it gets interesting, the way that we thought to demonstrate it most powerfully is by activating uh, your computer's camera and microphone using Adobe Flash at the time. So when you loaded Adobe Flash and the code wanted to access the microphone, a little security dialogue would come up and kind of say like, are you sure? So we click-jack that. So anytime you clicked on a page that we controlled, we would automatically capture your, you know, your, your picture and your audio right there in the browser. And uh, so we were talking to Adobe about this, and we wrote up a nice white paper, and we're about to uh, publish. And somebody, a, a friend of ours, um, comes to us and says, Jer, Robert, why are you zero-daying us? And we're like, what's zero-day? We don't think it's your bug. It's you know, just a security dialogue we're clickjacking that you shouldn't be able to do in the browser. And he goes, no, 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 no. You're, you're zero-daying us. We have a security mechanism against you people doing exactly that. And we're like, uh, we didn't notice any security prevention. It's not like we bypassed it. We, we would have told you. And he looks at the code. We gave him the code. And he looks at it and goes, it looks like we rolled back a prior update that we didn't tell anybody about. Like, we didn't, no we didn't notice it. And we're like, oh, okay. So, like, if we didn't have this, com this polite conversation with Adobe, we would have zero-dayed them not knowing that we really would have zero data Adobe. So that was uh, that was the start of clickjacking. And today Robert posts on Twitter that uh, the terminology clickjacking showed up in some contemporary, you know, techno geeky TV show on, you know, on that just was just really weird. So if I recall, you had even pulled this stunt on some folks in the office once because way before people are running around with these little protective lenses on their cameras back at white hat we had ours covered up for a long time <laughs> they're like the click jack his own employees <laughs> um we had an army of hack i mean we're a hacker company with an army of hackers so the policy at the company was hack anything hack everything at all times it was a it was not only allowable in the rules, it was recommended at all times. So you can only imagine the pranks we would play on each other. I mean, oh, I don't have to imagine. Uh, <laughs> uh, even the soda machine wasn't safe. <laughs> no. <laughs> cool. So what are you up to these days? Tell us a bit about bit discovery. Sure. Um, what I learned at White Hat was uh, as we're finding vulnerabilities in websites, customers would want to scan everything, all their websites. And we would go, great. Please tell us a list of all your websites. And of course, they couldn't because no one had an inventory of all their websites. In fact, they didn't have an inventory of anything. What those <clears throat> that aren't familiar with this world, aren't familiar with security or even IT is most companies, and I'm talking the largest of the large, really have no idea about their external attack service, what they have connected to the internet, their websites, mail servers, IoT devices, anything really. They don't even know their domain names. And it turns out to be a thorny problem. And this seemed worthy enough, a big enough problem, challenging enough problem to found a company. So what BitDiscovery does, it, creates, uh, it has created attack surface maps of any company you would like, um, whether it's Oracle, Microsoft, or whatever. And that's what really makes us unique. There's companies out there that have access to lots and lots of internet data. But what we really excel at is attribution. 
attributing some random host name and IP address on the internet to a particular company that owns it. And then we can run very interesting analytics, very interesting queries on the inventory of one particular company. So uh, I find it to be the largest and most important unsolved problem in the space because as the adage goes, you can't secure what you don't know you own. Indeed. I mean, we, we come from a very similar lens, although from the data side of things, you, you can't secure what, what you don't know you have, right? Like, you know, go and find, in your case, you're finding, you're finding assets out in the internet. In our case, we're finding uh, data assets, uh, you know, w- within a, an organization. Um, so this problem space in particular, because I've seen a little bit of the research you published, uh, you'll drop some things on LinkedIn once in a while. Um, what's one of the more interesting, notable um, finds, if you would? We know a lot about what is out there, um, who owns what, types of devices. We are just now starting to understand why. Why do you have this many websites? Why do things change this way? Why are, con- why are companies hosting in so many countries? Why do they have open, open RDP ports? But one of the in, I, more interesting things on, uh, we're trying to track over time is the change rate of the attack surface of the average, let's say, top U.S. company. Because you can add or remove certain assets um, in general, certain host names and IP addresses. You can add those to your inventory or remove them. Other things that will change is the technology is, the, let's say, the services on the system. Is it running uh, TLS? Is it running FTP, SSH? Those will turn on and off. And then the software that's running all these things in the patch level, that changes all the time too. And for the average organization, our estimate is that the attack surface for these organizations will change roughly between 1% and 5% collectively every single month. Things are changing all the time. So when we're tracking this, one of the interesting things that we found is that there's this phrase, um, business is moving to the cloud, right? We've, we've, all, we've all heard this and everybody, when you say this, everybody nods. We... In large part, yeah. In large part, we haven't found that to actually be true. People or companies are adopting the cloud also, but it's not like the cloud is largely replacing legacy systems. They're just doing cloud also. So you have all this legacy on-premise stuff, and then they throw cloud on top. And a lot of companies have adopted the cloud, but not everything is going to the cloud. That's a, it's an important nuance. Mm. Not everything is going to the cloud, even though they're adopting the cloud. I, I get that. Um, we see we see a lot of data moving to the cloud, but you, I, I'd agree with you. We still see a lot of infrastructure as well staying in the cloud. Although the thing we see a lot moving to the cloud is, is something that you're all too familiar with, right? Applications. Um, you know, AWS is, uh, well, hell, it pretty much runs the interwebs these days, doesn't it? It's, uh, it's pretty big. I think uh, we, I was just talking to Robert today. And he's estimating we're doing close to we're processing close to a petabyte of data per month now, of uh, inter- internet data. So it is extremely vast. It's f- about 4.5 billion total assets, and so we're trying to learn everything we can about each and every asset, where it is, who owns it, what's it's running, and so it's a massive amount of data to crunch. But it's the only way to solve this problem. All right, I'm hogging all the airtime. I know Cam, you had some really good questions. Oh, did I? <laughs> uh, thanks, Gabe. <clears throat> so I'm just curious, like, let's just say, for instance, we're at, uh, we're at a conference, hypothetical. 
<laughs> Very hypothetically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not a thing anymore. Some, sometimes companies struggle to. Uh, I don't. I wouldn't say sales pitch somebody, but what would you say? The easiest is like this, the mo- the simplest way to explain your company's why to listeners or to anyone out there just to better understand. You know, this is what we do. This is what we can solve. Like, do you? What's the easiest way you can put that into perspective? So, usually, when we interact with companies, it usually starts just a, as a top level business value prop. Everybody in InfoSec agrees you should have an asset inventory because you need to know what it is that you're protecting. That's no one disagrees with that. But that alone isn't an, isn't enough. Um, isn't enough, I should just say. What's the use case? Now you have an inventory. Now what do you do? So one of the use cases will be vulnerability management. Vulnerability management should scan everything. And one quick sidebar on that, if everybody's familiar with the Equifax uh, hack by now, you know, Equifax was hacked. Mm-hmm. Lots of data was stolen. They lost a couple hundred million dollars that way. Um, and the way, and the easy narrative is that they, they didn't patch. While true, that's actually not into the whole story. When you read the FTC complaint, what you find is that they actually patched other systems to the particular vulnerability they were hacked by, just not the one on the website in question, because they said they didn't know what existed. They would have patched it if they knew it existed. And so vulnerability management, you need an asset inventory to know that you're scanning everything. So that's one of the particular use cases. Another one might be is a third-party risk management. You're looking to bring out a new vendor you know, in some way, shape, or form. How is their security? And the one that's come up a lot most recently is uh, uh, mergers and acquisitions. Mm. You're, you're thinking about buying something, you're in the process of buying something, or it's just been announced and all of a sudden your IT team says, wait a minute, we just bought what? And all of a sudden now they have this whole other problem. What does that network look like? And so we've been brought in a lot of times to, do, uh, to give a tax versus maps on a newly acquired company for M&A purposes. So there's lots and lots of use cases for this data, but those are some of the top three. Awesome. That's great answers. Thank you. I'm going to share my screen for obviously those just listening. Let's go to a little bit of Twitter history here. So Jeremiah, I guess I'll I'll just read this off. So InfoSec budgets, this was a a tweet from you. Uh, InfoSec budgets don't seem to be increasing at the same rate as the attack surface of an organization, which is expanding fast and changes constantly. If so, the amount of money available to protect each individual asset is decreasing over time. Let's talk about that. So I was pointing out that uh, InfoSec spends about $120 billion a year, and it grows somewhere between 6 and 8% a year, if you believe all the estimates. And But the attack surface of the internet grows much, much faster than that. Hundreds of millions of new assets. If you just... Think about how many new assets the average organization grows. If you just do straight division on an InfoSec budget relative to the number of assets IT or IT security is meant to secure, the ratio is going down, meaning we're going to have less money and less people able per asset in order to secure them. Now, I was pointing that out because what we learned in information security is that what a larger part of what we do now is all about scale. We can have a solution to, you know, like let's say the adage, all you have to do is patch your systems and a lot of the problems would go away. Well, it's, it's yeah, it's true, but it's devoid of the context of 
how many systems do I have to patch how often and in what amount of time and do all the regression testing. It's a matter of scale. So it's kind of pointing out that we're going to have less money to say, let's do patching and we're going to have to do more patching faster, more, you know, more inexpensively now. And that's, it goes across every security solution out there. And I think it's really important for everybody to understand that InfoSec is about scale. We have all the answers. What we don't know is how to scale. Any takes on that, Gabe? I mean, yeah, the bad guys know how to scale. What do you think? What do you think is their innate advantage that allows them to scale? Because when I think about it, sure, they have time, which is the one resource that they have an advantage of over the the defenders. But time isn't really that big of a benefit for them, you know, from a scale perspective. So what allows them to scale the way they do? So we have a scalability constraint is we don't have an infinite amount of budget to hire an infinite amount of people to solve this problem. So that's why we're bringing up, you know, InfoSec brings up terms like let's use some AI and machine learning, you know, for to solve the scale problem because we can't hire an infinite amount of people. Where it gets a little different for the adversary from, you know, everything I've read and seen is <laughs> the adversary has basically hacked everything. When we hear about these 100,000 botnets, these million, uh, million node button botnets, they're effectively infected machines in every single enterprise globally. But these botnet operators and other cyber criminals have been so effective at their hacks, are so effective at their malware, they actually really don't know all the things that they've hacked. And now they need to monetize. Mm. So their scalability problem is recruiting enough people with enough skill sets fast enough to be able to monetize their supply chain. So where we see them innovating is in supply chain. How do we recruit new people faster? So if you see on the boards right now, it, they're not looking for exploits or new malware kits or exploit techniques. They're actually looking for money mules and things. That makes, that makes a whole lot of sense. Any thoughts on how we disrupt that at all? Is it disruptable from your perspective? I was talking with a friend of mine in the industry about this, um, you know, It'll be controversial to say, but mm -hmm. I think after $120 billion annually, um, I think we might have, our industry might have hit peak prevention, at least when it relates to an, uh, a sentient attacker. If we, just as a thought exercise, say, let's move to $240 million billion a year in spending, how many breaches would be reduced? Probably not all that much. I think we might have hit diminishing returns. And if that's the case, then I think we're best served by looking at fast detection and response. So to go back to the Equifax example, I think the damage for them was so great because the adversary was in there for at least a month, six to nine months or something like that, if memory serves. If the adversary was only on there for a month, a week, God forbid a day, would they have been able to commit the same damage? Probably not. So I think we have to look in terms of that. If you're working with a sentient adversary who's going to be nonstop, going to work very hard to attack you, they're going to succeed eventually. Then we're better served by looking at defense techniques to make them work harder and be detected faster and increase their costs. I think that that's the, probably the better, uh, better solutions now. I think also the problem with that is we have a cultural aversion to this in InfoSec. Um, 
we don't like, you know, InfoSec has an ego problem. We don't like losing and losing to us means we got hacked. But for the business that we protect, that's not losing to them. Losing to them is losing money and losing customers. And just because you got breached doesn't mean you lost any money. So there's right. a disconnect there. But if you ask the average InfoSec person, like, like when is it okay to leave a vulnerability exposed? They'll say never. You know, that's it's never okay. It it kind of it, it 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 it's offensive to our senses. So I think we have a we have to come culturally around to this as a, just a an emotional exercise that we have to learn how to do true risk management in terms of the business right now. But most of us came from a network or a software security background as you got hacked or you didn't. Our job is to make sure we never get hacked. Now we're suggesting that it's okay to get hacked sometimes. That's just a really weird to get your head around. <laughs> <laughs> just sometimes. But only sometimes. <laughs> but only sometimes. Just a little bit. Just yeah. a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's switch gears just a little bit, but not too far. Let's keep talking about uh, attackers. because it's, it's, it's ultimately why uh, why all of this industry exists. I mean, there's no security really without the attackers, right? Um, no one's selling locks if there's no one breaking into homes. Um, there's how there's I, no Joker. There's no Batman without Joker. Well, <laughs> well <laughs> maybe. 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 Look, the Joker didn't kill his parents. I mean, I try to remind everyone of that. Like, I don't understand. Like, he's not the problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's our failing mental health care system. No, anyway. <laughs> Speaking of healthcare, the place I was going was pandemic. Here we are. We are sitting in the middle of a plague. I don't like the word pandemic anymore, by the way, guys. From now on, just let's just call it what it is. It's a plague. It's a plague. Let's just let's just use the word. It's a plague. That's an interesting. That's an interesting distinction. I don't know what the, the definitional difference is between plague and pandemic. People drop dead in a plague. A pandemic sounds like something that you watch. Like a panic from bar. Yeah, it's like <laughs> pandemic something you read about. Plague is something you smell as you walk down the street. <laughs> For an industry that deals with viruses and things like that, we seem ho- hopefully unequipped. <laughs> you, you think there'd be something to learn from us too, but nope. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nah, not on that one. Uh, but how has the pandemic changed attackers' models? Um, mm-hmm. You know, we, we talked a bit again about the, their scale. So we've got a couple of interesting interesting scenarios, right? Talk about assets out in the internet. Well, now every organization has a whole lot more assets out there in the internet because it's people connecting from homes. Yes, those things were always on the internet, but many of them were behind corporate VPNs to some degree. Now there's a mix of that, but a lot of them are hanging out there with just business data hanging out on, on machines out there. Nonetheless, the, the, the question though is, how has attacker models shifted if at all, during this plague? It's a good question. And uh, I've talked to a number of CISOs over the last number of months. And uh, when when I've seen them ask the same question, they go, not a whole lot, not so much. But one of the things that we're looking closely at is that what the pandemic has caused, it's caused um, an economic slowdown. Lots of people have lost their jobs. You know, lots of people are going without paychecks. And from my experience, just in, you know, over the last 20 years, whenever that happens, whenever you have people that go without work, they try to, they have to feed themselves somehow, and they'll go after whatever opportunities are available to them eventually. Um, you know, that's and it could be argued that a lot of the Eastern uh, Eastern Bloc countries where you see a lot of organized cybercrime came out of that type of situation where they had a dot com meltdown 
and a bunch of software engineers went without work and they gravitated to the only way to make money that they had access to, which was cybercrime, phishing, credit card fraud, and things like that. Right. So I think right now my concern would be that if you have millions and millions of unemployed people, when the checks finally stop, when unemployment finally runs out, many of them might be uh, leveraged you know, for a life of cybercrime, at least at the very least temporarily. So I think the adversary that we talked about earlier might have an easier time recruiting you know, globally. Sounds like sounds like something's brewing up for another company, if you know what I mean. <laughs> if, you, uh, if you have it in you, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm good. I got one one startup startups uh, that have, <laughs> no. not, have, have not run one. It's all consuming. You are it is all consuming day and night. <laughs> you know, that's just how it works. <laughs> that's an interesting perspective, though, and that's incredibly true if you think about it. Though that's really interesting. And we, you know. The, I can buy it. We saw, we equally saw a similar thing happen um, when Eastern Bloc countries were were shifting to more democratic models. You know, the wall came down between East West Germany. Um, in Russia, there was, uh, you know, some significant economic collapses, and you had you had uh, some very well trained and highly educated technology folks getting into cybercrime. Um, that's not to say like, you know, their, their entire society turned to crime, but you know, the, the, the point there is that this isn't exactly, this isn't exactly just script kitty um, that we're talking about here. We're, we're talking about folks that, that have been trained uh, in high tech that it, turn their, their powers towards. It's all up and down the skill set spectrum. Let's say you find somebody like a really good software programmer that's out of work in whatever region there there are there are, they could be attractive. Um, but even the ones that are unemployed, un, uh, I mean, imagine um, what some other remote worker. They're not a technologist. They're just they happen to work on a computer from whatever job they're at, a healthcare company or whatever. How much money would be would it take for them to give up their their 2FA token or whatever to an adversary, $100, $500, you know, they're, they're making some amount of money, but not a lot. How much would it really take right. um, for something like that? Or for a CSR at a telecom, which has happened before to give the creds over to intercept uh, an SMS for a two factor off of that way. I mean, it's, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot, it's not just the out of work employees. It's the ones that just aren't making a whole heck of a lot. And if an adversary gave them a few hundred bucks that they can, that the adversary could leverage into a hundred thousand, that's what's going to happen. Like, what would it take really? Let's just, just think hypothetically here. And I hate the whole FUD stuff, but I think it's, it's important that we think work through it. We have a lots of uh, heads of state on Twitter and Facebook, for example, their systems are going to be protected by 2FA. What is it going to take to bribe someone at one of these tech companies or a telecom to intercept a 2FA code or a token? How much money is it really going to take? Not a lot. I think it's a legitimate question. That we, we've seen it. Well, we've definitely seen it in the digital world. But for those that, that can't make the connection, we've seen it in the physical world, right? You know, some some underpaid employee leaves a back door open, a physical back door open to, to a business at night so that some criminal can come in and, and, and you know, take off with the goods. Digital back doors are really not that different. So what does it take to, to, to your point, you know, bribe a, a undercompensated technology employee to leave a back door? 
or a software programmer working on a very important or wide distributed library in GitHub. Here's a thousand dollars, put this line of code here. Yeah. You know, so, you know, InfoSec, we're trained to think of like the most awful thing that could happen. Maybe some of these things will happen sometimes, but that's, that's kind of what we're paid to do. We're, we're, we're trained to look for all the bad things that could happen. And then unfortunately we lose sight of what the likelihood of any of this could happen, but it's, we still have to start somewhere. Likelihood is a very good point because that, that does get to the overall question of addressing risk. Um, Cause if the likelihood and frequency events aren't terribly high, then, you know, what's, what's the point? It's like, yes, I could be hit by a meteor, but what's the chance of that happening? Well, one of the things I learned uh, way back in my days at Yahoo is I learned the, uh, the value of time and the adversary shifting. What I learned at Yahoo was feasibly, I'll, I'll use metrics that are a little fungible. If I made my system 20 minutes secure, meaning it took 20 minutes to, uh, to hack our system, the bad guy would, tr would try to hack us and hack us successfully. If we made it 30 minutes secure, they'd go after eBay and Amazon. So... If we close up one doorway that the adversary is monetizing or winning on, they'll shift to another one. So what that means is the likelihood of, a, of an adversary going after one avenue is directly related to another one that they're currently monetizing. So they will shift. Yeah. So speaking of shifting, let's shift to the other tweet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for all the for all of you listening, I'll go ahead and read out Jeremiah's other tweet, um, and then we'll we'll uh, dissect it. So if you read what's available in InfoSec, you'll learn the industry spends 120 billion annually. You'll learn that companies spend money on. Wait, I read that wrong. You'll learn what companies spend money on. Sorry, who gets hacked, how, by whom, and how much data is lost. I've spent countless hours analyzing attack surface maps from bit discovery. Yep. Where I was going with that is, is, and we, we touched on a little bit in the, you know, in the last few minutes, um, when we're talking about attack techniques and new ways attackers get into the system, I, we find that the adversary is trying to scale their business model. Mm -hmm. They're not necessarily trying to be innovative in terms of attack techniques. The vast majority of the time, I mean, think about it this way, you know, Gabe, this would be great for you. How many major breaches or even minor breaches that can we think of where you're like, whoa, that adversary was really, really good. That one caught us really by surprise that we had no way of counteracting that break-in. Yeah, it's literally less than six that I can think of. Yeah, I mean, the vast majority, we know how to, we know how to defend these things. We just don't or we, we can't due to scalability reasons. So... Yeah, the point I was making is InfoSec, InfoSec innovates in attack techniques. Adversaries innovate and in that right now they scale up in their business model. Their innovation is in their tools to scale and the diversification of labor. And so uh, if you treat them like organized crime, like a network, like Gabe was talking about earlier, how do we, how do we disrupt them? It's by finding, you know, you might say the kill chain, but we try to make certain aspects of what they do more, dif more difficult and expensive. More difficult than expensive. More difficult and expensive. And expensive, yes, yes. Yeah, I was going to say, oh, that's interesting, but no, I'm I'm with you there. Making it more expensive. That has certainly been one area where it does seem to frustrate attackers, and maybe frustrate is not the right word. But when you make it more expensive for them to to achieve their aims, 
they tend to move on. I, I feel like a large part of that is a byproduct of there's just so many soft targets though, right? Like why spend that time at all when there's so many soft targets? Well, and from there to, to dig in on that, there's a, broadly speaking, two classes of adversary. One is uh, the ones that are financially motivated where they have an ROI model. They'll hack whoever as long as they're making money. And then you have the more direct and targeted adversary that want a particular target. So by, by focusing on an economics model, make things more expensive, you, you're going after the cyber criminal. It's not going to necessarily detour somebody that's targeted. They want to hack that one particular company and they'll work tirelessly at it. What you're trying to do in that case is that even if you make it more expensive, they're going to come after you. What you're trying to do is make it harder on them so that their attacks are detectable and shorter lived. That's what we're trying to do there. Shorter lived is very important because we talked already about this too, but you know, it, we live with an expectation that there will be some compromise. In fact, I gave, I gave a talk earlier this year at uh, InfoSec where um, you know, the topic of it was, was that paradox that we live in where we assume compromise and we wake up every day to defend against uh, you know, attacks, but, but in such a way that we, we still have to assume compromise. Or, uh, I, I think I quote um, Fitzgerald in that one where the, the sign of a great intelligence is holding two opposing thoughts at the same time and maintaining your sanity. I'm paraphrasing there, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but that, is, that is InfoSec in a nutshell, isn't it? It's uh, and it also relates to the pandemic or, you know, how we operate as humans. Um, for instance, we get sick sometimes. We're not trying to never, ever, ever get sick. We know we're going to get sick sometimes and we expect to get over it in three to five days. And we get extremely upset if it lasts longer than that. So we, we, ex we exist in this world now. That's how we normally operate as humans. We'll take the sickness. We'll take the infection. I'm out for a couple of days. No big deal. But if I'm sick for a month, you know, that's a problematic. And that's what's really scary. And uh, what's difficult about this world is we're locked indoors for months at a time. We're not used to this. I mean, we're, we're silently suffering. We're not used to this one. This is way outside of our norm. It makes it a very difficult world because it breaks down all our, you know, all our laws of uh, how we've existed to the last hundred years. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. I have a feeling that even the introverts are like, okay, enough, enough. I, I, I want to get outside. Like this, n n agoraphobia has cured itself. No one has that problem. It's like, okay, okay, I want crowds again. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, to kind of go off topic on security a little bit, but uh, one of the things that I was talking to uh, one, my other co-founder with, uh, Lex Arquette, um, I founded White Hat with him. He left for a while. He went and uh, designed the UI for Facebook way back in the heyday, and now we started another company together. Um We've lost conferences as a, as a concept in our world, right? We don't get to meet our colleagues and share drinks and break bread with them anymore. And you don't get the hallway track and share those serendipitous moments. And what software so far is terrible at is creating serendipitous moments between people. I am, I have, when I would go to conferences, I would talk to people that I had would ne have never otherwise talked to about subjects I would never otherwise talk to them about. I would overhear conversations about, even though I didn't engage, I would hear what other people were talking about and that would create a serendipitous moment. We're here online with you and we're going to share thoughts, but there is no like, you know, I want to hear like the ambient noise of what other people are concerned about talking about and experiencing. So our software does not do this. And we're, I'm, I'm, and I'm concerned that I and everybody else are missing 
the problems that are actually out there because we don't get to be be around and talk to each other. There's no more water cooler conversation to be had anymore. That that is a huge one. I mean, the things that I miss certainly the most about in-person physical conferences is as as we uh, very lovingly referred to it as the hallway track. I have learned more, met more people, networked more in, in the hallways of conferences than I ever think I'll be able to online. Yeah, and that's a and that's a difficult one. So you ask the question like, uh, what you know, what's happening when we all start working at home? I don't I don't think we know. We we don't get to overhear our colleagues complaining, you know, or how mm-hmm. they did something. Um, I was asking a, a here's some complaints. Yeah. <laughs> I was asking, a, you know, one of the problems that came up is I was asking a, a CISO the other day. Um, sometimes you have to visit, the, you have to go into work and bounce a box and press the power button, you know, and plug things in and out. How are you doing this in a complete virtual world? And he said, like, we have protocols in place now. We have to sometimes send people into work to do certain things. And we had to design protocols for that. So, you know, it just... But what are the questions that I'm not, I don't know to ask them because I don't get to hear them complain at a conference. You know, those, those conversations are important. So we're, I think there's problems, big problems that are out there that just haven't surfaced yet. Yeah. Um, The other one will be is uh, when this pandemic is over and it will be over at some point, we, you know, it will be over. We'll get a vaccine eventually. No one knows when. Um, It's this pandemic has, and we've been working at home long enough for, commercial leases to expire and office space not leases not to be renewed. When this pandemic is over, are they going to, are the CFOs of all these companies going to renew their leases or get brand new office space and expect us to go back to work? I not if they're still making money. I don't think so. That would be very, very hard to justify. So yeah, we'll be allowed to go outside, but I think this world of operating, like how we're working together now, I think this is our new norm. And I think we have a lot to a lot to learn about how culturally about how to work this way because I don't think it's going back. So you mean to tell me that these migraines are going to continue because <laughs> I have to be in front of my computer screen all day? <laughs> well, I, think, I I I see problems as purely opportunities. There's not, I think there's opportunities for more and better telepresence software that would create these serendipitous moments. I don't think we've there's ever been a need for it before, but I think you know if I was to mentor some uh, college kids on what the next greatest problems are. Uh, for the world to solve. It's creating serendipitous moments of human interaction using software. There's probably a lot to be learned from the gaming world. Um, the, uh, gaming, the world of gaming and online gaming does create serendipitous moments. Mm-hmm. Um, but that type of software, that type of interaction hasn't, hasn't got to the world of enterprise yet. And I think it could. I don't know. I, now I'm envisioning a weird Black Mirror episode with a bunch of... <laughs> With a bunch of World of Warcraft players, and I'm not liking where this is going, Jairz. <laughs> That's only because you're from InfoSec. <laughs> True, isn't it? You're right. <laughs> Always looking for the worst possible yeah. thing that could happen. Well, Ooh. that in 2020, right? Like every time I hear something, I'm like, nope, 2020 is listening. is <laughs> 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 listening. And uh, but I, I I I put these problems out there not because I'm scared of the world, because I think it's important to articulate the global problems because. For me, I'm an entrepreneur, you know, I'm an unabashed capitalist. I want to know what the problems are because that's where we're going to create solutions and create, you know, all new things for the world to benefit from. For instance, um, you know, as a hiring manager, um, I would hire employees in the Bay Area, in Silicon Valley, that all live within like a, you know, an hour driving radius. And an employee there would have to compete against other employees for the job at my companies like every other place. 
now we live in a world where you can work a, a, a data job, right? You know, a knowledge, you can be a knowledge worker from anywhere in the world. So an entry level knowledge worker now has to compete against a worldwide audience, not, not just those within an hour drive. Mm. That's going to be very big and important to understand when and as college is open. You know, like they're going to have to prep their labor force, the new incoming labor force, to compete on a global stage. How are they going to do that exactly? Just the answer. I mean, they've been telling us that that's what they've been up to for all these years. But uh, let's see. Let's see if it actually pans out. Well, they've been doing that from like you know true enterprise like software development, but. I mean, d- d- you know, like every everything from the the DMV to getting permits and everything is like knowledge work now. So it's not just high tech; it's it's everything, right? Yeah. So obviously, with kind of related to talking about how things have changed and not getting that human interaction anymore, um, and how that's the new normal. Obviously, data privacy is changing as well and becoming even more important i think more than ever especially with everybody working from home and stuff like that so i just wanted to get your take on your thoughts on on data privacy and you know what bit discovery can maybe or you know their approach on it or just i guess just your opinion on data privacy and where it's heading to um, are we talking about from like an individual like me, Jeremiah Grossman or Gabe Gums or, or, you know, Cameron Ivy or more from like a, let's say corporate secret standpoint, like, or both. Ooh, I don't know. What do you think, Gabe? I think both. Yeah, both. We'll go with both. We'll go with the latter. <laughs> All right. Um, let's say we start with uh, individual privacy. I think it's difficult, if not impossible anymore. I mean, yeah. how many times has my social security number, date of birth been stolen? And I say mine loosely because it's not mine. Like if it was mine, I could say, you know, to any commercial company that has it, that you can't have it anymore. It's not mine. Um, and if you asked anybody like, hey, let's, go, let's go ask the Twitter and Facebook people where my data is in which states and geo, what data center could they tell me? Probably not. Could they tell me how many people have access to it? Or would they even understand the question? Certainly they don't. Um, how much does it really cost for the criminal underground who probably already has it 10 times over? What does it cost to get it? Uh, like, you know, where's my email? Um, when I traverse the web, you know, when I click from one page to the next for the vast majority of people, your entire click path is sent to a dozen third parties and resold over and over again. Um, it's not that I like this, but I don't think it exists anymore in large parts. And if whatever data privacy exists, I think it's purely temporary. Um, and I don't know if there's a good technical uh, solve for this now because it's left gone so far unaddressed. I know it's a it's a it's a really depressing state, but I don't I don't see how it it is any other way. True, and individual privacy for sure. And I think we could probably fix it technologically if, the, we, if we had more or different legislation. But where everybody's just looking at it the wrong, the wrong way, I think, is like we see Congress like, let's legislate Facebook for disinformation campaigns and things like that. I don't think that solves the problem. I think if you, as one example with me, if you give me intellectual property rights 
over my name and date of birth and I get to say who has it, you know, that would solve a lot. Um, we call this thing, and this is like one of my pet peeves is that we call this thing, I, I, the concept identity theft. That's, that's, that's the furthest thing from what it actually is. So let me get this straight. Somebody has my name, date of birth, social security number, someone else gives them money in my name and all of a sudden it's my problem. That's not identity theft. I'm still me. That's called loan fraud. The word identity theft was meant to shift the burden to me so somebody else isn't liable. If we just change the terminology, it then becomes solvable because no one, if, if you're, if the lender was left holding the bag on loan fraud, we don't have this problem anymore. <laughs> That's a hot take. And you've got my, you, you certainly got my support in that hundred percent. I, I, I'm increasingly frustrated with that shifting of blame. Um, blame shifting is not new to the InfoSec world or the <laughs> privacy space for that matter. Now, on the other hand, because if you think of how the dynamics change, if we go back to the enterprise side and corporate secrets, I think corporate secrets does very easily exist. And you can create a new secret, a new piece of IP, and you can control it because it's, they own it. They don't give it to anybody that doesn't, they don't want to. They can sue if it leaks. They have full control of their corporate secrets. So for good reason. I mean, like, imagine they can create a new secret. They know how to control it technologically, and they have the legislative backing to do it. Yes, corporate secrets exist in a way that data privacy for the average person doesn't, just because the way the system is structured. Indeed. Kind of reminds me, Gabe, of our, I hate to reference it a lot, but going back to our, our first episode where we talk about and I think a lot of that individual privacy, like you're saying, Jeremiah, is it's kind of non-existent because the way the world works nowadays, technology is used by businesses for for good things to to you know know when the hottest time is for their selling points and stuff like that uh, to keep tabs on customers. Um, just so they know when the hottest parts of the day are for selling ice cream. But I mean, that alone goes into a database. And then what did that customer put in that's, that's actually private data or considered private data that is now being distributed who knows where. <laughs> so it's like, and, and no, no one really does know where yeah. and it will change moment to moment. <laughs> the cloud <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it sounds so innocuous, doesn't it? It's, it's the cloud. It's this nice, billowy, you know, safe looking. You mean like the cloud in uh, uh, Mario? That guy with the yes. little fishing thing? Well, that guy's a jerk. So not <laughs> he <bad>. is. <laughs> he is a jerk. I don't. Does he have a name? He does. I don't remember his name. I what don't either. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so, you know, social media is uh, one heck of a thing, and uh, I. You know, when I have to, you know, when people say, what, what, what can I do to protect myself? And I, the only yeah. thing I can really tell them is yes, patch. Yes. Use two factor off. Don't use the same password across systems. Those are very easy, but more importantly, treat every social media and cloud provider as purely public. Anything you put there is public. It's mm -hmm. public. That way, if it gets lost, stolen, abused, well, it was public. You knew that in advance. Yeah. Don't trust those platforms. They're not trustable entities. You are not their customer. You are the product that they sell to other people who pay them. And once you get your head around that, then you don't have to worry so much because then, you know, everything you do is public. You know, I don't, don't post things or message things that, uh, that are, you don't consider public. Don't do that. 
Awesome. You, and you signal, you tour. <laughs> yeah. There's our hot take for the week. Love it. Why? Right, well, shameless plug. I've got no connection at all, but I've really been enjoying using wires for uh, a lot of digital get togethers and conferencing with other folks, um, but in a secure manner. Awesome. So let's move on to our last section. We'll wrap things up. Um, so Jeremiah, this is our fun section. Okay. It's where we get a little, a little more private Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> on privacy, please. I rolled around on the floor with Jerry's legs around my neck. I don't, I don't know if I can get any more private. Quite right. <laughs> <laughs> Things we didn't mention. He also happens to be a black belt in jujitsu. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. There's your hidden talent that nobody knows about. Maybe. Oh, uh, everybody. Oh, knows. people know. <laughs> okay. Well, I didn't know. Well, my, neck, my neck still knows because I am not even a white belt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, um, it's funny. I started training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu about 15 years ago. And uh, during my journey in the first couple of years, I would get, a, you know, I'd, I would go to conferences to do public speaking. And then I would go to different academies and I would train a lot. And I would get black eyes and bloody noses and abrasions on my face. And I would show up to like business meetings and conferences. Like I did in like some kind of local fight club, right? And uh, it didn't look very professional. So I had to start telling people and blogging about what I was doing to explain myself. And uh, that had a way of inspiring others to start training. So, um, you know, you know, people in the industry, I get, you know, sometimes get a, uh, I should say, you know, I, because my opinions can be a little controversial, I antagonize people. So I try to make myself available at conferences twice a year for anybody to the, that wants to mix it up and see what happens. <laughs> try to exact their revenge. <laughs> um, it, but no, it's all, it's all fun and games. I, I do these things every year at Blackhead and RSA called the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Smackdown, where a whole bunch of security professionals get together, everybody from a, a network engineer to a CISO. And we get together and we train with UFC champions and pro fighters. And we have a fantastic time, actually. That's awesome. It's, it's a highlight. And uh, more things we can't do in a pandemic. I miss those. I miss the SmackDowns. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's like this was going to be the 10th year, Dave, the 10th year. So the 10th year will have to be on the 11th year. And uh, yeah, I mean, Revenge of, the, Revenge of the Nerds is happening, man. You don't, you know. These there's a lot of there's a lot of infosec people that are high level belts now. Don't mess with them. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so for those who don't know, there's actually a lot of really interesting and weird hobbies in infosec. There's a lot of folks in the martial arts. There's a lot of folks that deadlift. There's a lot of folks into uh, some weird weaponry and stuff. To like <laughs> yeah, not like AK forty seven shit, but like you know, like torture stuff. Yeah, yeah, a lot of. Something like InfoSec brings out brings out the weird in people, and, and maybe even the, maybe even the dangerous, the weird and the dangerous. I love it. It's probably why I'm so at home here. All right, last section, Cam, take it away. Sorry, you 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 stole one of my pet peeve questions, so we know what that is. <laughs> so, what is what do you th- what do you think is the most useless product that's used today? Useless product, like a product class, or not? What I don't want to like. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of products that come to mind. You, you know what? You to leave her at your at your door later today. <laughs> um, could be whatever you want. It doesn't have to. Uh, yeah, I, I think what's really really interesting is for those that are not uh, even in infosec, it's interesting because we never really consider this. Um, 
the percentage of in people in InfoSec that run antivirus on their own personal machines. We will recommend endpoint protection and antivirus for everybody else except ourselves. The vast majority of InfoSec pros do not use antivirus. I mean, the shoemaker's kids never have shoes, bro. We just just running around town barefoot, cutting our feet on glass. That's just island life, though. <laughs> and the best explanation I can have for it is that what the InfoSec Pro does to protect themselves, they can. The, uh, antivirus has certain side effects that we don't like, but those side effects are better, you know, for the average user who can't behaviorally don't know the behaviors that to protect themselves. So we go, you should use antivirus because you don't know how to behave online like we do. I'll, I'll break show rules and, and switch back out of, of the fun section for a second. But because it's an important, it's important conversation for our listeners, you talked about early detection and response. And that is the number one piece of advice I give to those that aren't in InfoSec. Early detection and response means lock your stupid credit report if you're not using it. <laughs> so that you'll get an alert the second that happens. And when you see that type of activity happening, that is your trigger to respond to an event early and fast. There is no response, especially for the average person, after there's been you know, a, a compromise of their information. Yep. Interesting. Anyway, Soapbox. What's what's the last song you listened to? And was it in Spotify or iTunes? Okay, this is this is going to reveal a little bit about my personality <laughs> type. I had to look this up and I forgot the name of it, but there is a, a certain class of people that really does not listen to any music at all, or it's very rarely. And I'm one of those people. I I think my really? my playlist when I play it might be. I think I've probably bought twenty songs on iTunes ever. <laughs> Is weird. You know, I've known you for a long time. I've never known that. Yeah, Interesting. I, I, I really don't ever turn on the radio. Well, it's not so weird. I, I don't own a TV. Well, that's <laughs> I, not weird. I, I don't play music. Mm. I, I read stuff. I watch shows sometimes. But I'm usually just always trying to learn things. And if not, I'm not learning things, I'm fighting people and learning things. <laughs> oh, but music. I mean, like, yeah, not on TV, not that weird, but no music ever. Huh. Very that's hard. hard. Very, very rarely, very rarely. So, Interesting. Yeah. so there, there, there is, I forget the name, the name of the person, probably look it up online, but there is a type of person that doesn't listen to music much. It, um, it, it always, maybe, there's a term for it. Yeah. Uh, we need to find out what that term is. I just assume that was called music executives. Cause I have a feeling they, they don't listen to their own product at all. Yeah. <laughs> Nowadays, yeah. Um, a musical on A.N. Hedonia. Hedonia. Today I learned. It's a neurological condition involving <laughs> individuals' incapacity to enjoy listening to music. <laughs> yeah, see, that makes sense. Now I get it. Now it makes perfect sense. Okay. <laughs> yes. So I, I do like listening to music. It's not like universally true. It's sometimes, but I'm talking like, I'll play it yeah. once or twice a month, maybe. Interesting. Mm -hmm. That's that's rare. I mean, honestly, that's that doesn't mean anything. I, this this question might relate to you even better, and I'm curious of how you're going to take it. So, what would what would your perfect room look like? Oh, my perfect room. Mm -hmm. Oh man. Um, and you can take it many different angles, but I think it's just a way to kind of 
tell a lot about the kind of person you are? <laughs> um, I don't know if I can answer it that way. I think uh, I'm a very utilitarian person at heart. It's like everything must have utility. Everything in my life must have use. Probably because I'm, I'm particularly driven. I just like problem solving, you know, whatever happens to be. So my, I guess my perfect room and situation would be everything has a, has a use for whatever I'm per- currently working on. So maybe like an escape room? Oh, that would be that would be annoying because I'm escaping for no particular reason. I'm not producing any value. <laughs> <laughs> but you're solving problems and you're trying to get out. Um, so it, as an example, right now at, uh, at my house in Maui, I'm building my own private MMA cage. And it's just like, that's my room. That's the that's house. Awesome. It's designed specifically for me and training jujitsu and MMA. It's like, that's what, what it is. I will, I will be your personal Joe Rogan. You can, uh, <laughs> hey, Gabe, when, when this is all over, come out, we'll mix it up in paradise. It's, uh, I, got a, I got a private cage in the jungle, man. Done and done. <laughs> Never have I reacted so fast to an invitation to a private cage on an island and, as I have this one. <laughs> and, and so here, and here's the utility of that. So it's right. So my house in Maui has a wraparound deck. And right next to the deck, there's the cage. So you go straight from the TV that I have for watching UFC. You get really excited. You watch a fight. You get amped up. And then you go, I want to try that move in the cage, like 20 steps away. Like, that's that's that's, that's the dream. <laughs> we got it right here. Let's go. <laughs> you ever get in an argument with your wife? You can be like, all right, let's take it to the cage. You have admitted like <laughs> I used to do that with my uh, one of my little brothers. And uh we're about the same size now, but oh my God, he's a monster. So I don't, I don't, we don't, there is no sibling rivalries in my family anymore. Everybody's too dangerous. <laughs> Those can be dangerous. Yeah. Everybody's too well. There's no more street fights in Hawaii now because everybody's to, so, so trained. It's actually dangerous. Everybody's like, no, everybody is uh, trained and has gnarled ears and like me. So, <laughs> <laughs> so personal question what uh what's your tp situation like at home are you an uh over guy or an under guy on the when you put the toilet paper on the roll uh i can't say i care which way <laughs> <laughs> I, I gotta tell you that sounds like another neurological disorder there's a right and a wrong answer to this question Jeremy. what <laughs> there is i <laughs> <laughs> if you gotta go check go check because we need to know <laughs> that's ocd man that's like right <laughs> if, yeah i tell you what whatever way i haven't found one one that saved me more time <laughs> okay but we live in a society and over is the only way <laughs> if we gotta take this offline we can <laughs> okay so okay so, okay, so gabe I'm, I'm i'm new to boise idaho where i'm at now i'm in a new like i'm in a place here it's not like anybody's coming over. <laughs> fair. That's fair. It's the Idaho after all. That's acceptable. Yeah, the judges not. will allow it. The judges will allow yep. it. Yep. We'll take that. I'm curious, Jeremiah, how do you start your day? Oh, uh, uh, not listening. Mostly it's like a win. I get up probably 5.30 or 6 uh, every day. It doesn't matter what particular day. Um, you know, probably lay in bed and check mail, read Twitter, you know, annoy people. And then, uh, <laughs> and get ready for the, for the work day. And, uh, yeah. I, you know, my, my days are different. Like I, I never subscribe to working hours or working days. Gabe will tell you this. I'm always working, always accessing. And it's not like, um, yeah, I probably overwork, but, uh, my life revolves around life and work synonymously. There's no work days or play days. It's all the same to me. Yeah. So it's a good thing when you love what you do. I like, I liked it a lot. Um, you know, security is, uh, challenging 
one of the things that wears on the psyche is that our job is to look for the negative, the bads that happen all day long. And unfortunately, it really, it hurts the psyche a lot of times. So we have to remember what we're doing and why and not lose the, lose the balance between likelihood. All we do mostly is self-fear all day. And uh, it's important to understand what it is that we're doing, that we're really meant to protect, protect people. But uh, it's, it's difficult and there's a large burnout in our, our industry and uh, we have to exercise a lot of patience with uh, not only ourselves, yeah. but with other people. Yeah. Cause it, it, it also, with everything going on, it's increased uh, mental health issues as well. So yeah, yeah. The fear and anxiety is rough. <clears throat> it's yeah. really, really rough. I mean, imagine for the average CSO or infrasec practitioner, all they do is try to find what's wrong with everything all day long and just waiting for the hack to happen. And that's the world in which they live. Everything sucks. Everything can go bad at any moment in time. Oh. After a while, that's that that they become that world and they lose sight that the world is continuing on despite all the hacks, but that's, that's really difficult for them to hold on to. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a characteristic that's uh, quite common. And uh, that's, that's why, again, why conferences are important, you know, to commiserate with others. That's, that's, yeah. It's an interesting world we live in nowadays, nowadays. Uh, one last question. Are you a big texter? What, what's your most used emoji? Most used emoji? Uh, <laughs> probably the happy face. Um, happy face? Probably just very simple. Oh, no, 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 no. No. Um, I found this from the other day. The shaka, the phone sign. Uh, so I'm from Hawaii, right? And so you use the, the telephone thing, right? Uh-huh. The finger. I've always been using that as like, you know, hang loose shaka from Hawaii. Right. Yeah. I just always thought it was weird because I just realized it lately that there was like there was there was the telephone emoji, like call me maybe. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> I thought it was the thing from uh, um, Crocodile yeah. Dundee when he's like doing that thing to the kangaroo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the uh, the hypnosis gesture. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. So like everybody, like I would use where people would use thumbs up. I would use like the, the telephone or the shaka sign. And everybody thought, I, I didn't realize no one was really getting what it was. Oh, they were, they were thinking like, Hey, call me, man. Yeah. <laughs> Jair knows why no one responds to his text. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Well, Jeremiah, thank you so much for your time and it's precious nowadays. So we really appreciate you being on the show for us and, I'm sure the listeners definitely enjoyed and I know I did. So uh, thank you for what you do and for what you are doing and just uh, hope, hope to have you back on. We'll just, we'll, we'll just uh, call you a recurring guest. I'm sure you'll be back on at some point. I really appreciate it guys. That was fun. But again, thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. Always good to chat with you. Hey, um, we mentioned your Twitter feed, et cetera, but where can folks find you online? Where can they come bother you back? Uh, Jeremiah G on Twitter, probably the best way. Right on. And bitdiscovery.com, is that right? www.bitdiscovery.com or I think it's, yeah, bitdiscovery on Twitter. All right, beautiful. We'll uh, we'll make sure to post those in the show notes as well. Jer, always a pleasure. Um, let's catch up again soon. Take it easy, bro. Thanks a lot. I just wanted to thank all of you out there for tuning in each and every week and to all of our amazing guests for coming on. I, I know that there are millions of other shows and It means the world to have you with us on this journey. We are so grateful that you choose to listen to us each and every week. If you like the show, tell a friend, have them tell their friends, and then maybe make some new friends along the way. 
uh, so we can continue to spread the word and keep learning together. Let's protect what matters most. And by the way, DJ, can you go ahead and drop that outro beat and keep it classy? We'll see y'all next week. Oh,